Hi, everyone. Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship. This is a live event and podcast series. I'm your host, Melinda Brianna Epler, the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst. At Change Catalyst, we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. In this series, we work to go deep and get real. Uh, We build empathy for historically underrepresented people and provide tangible, actionable steps that we can all take to be better allies and better advocates for each other. Welcome, everyone. This is Leading with Empathy and Allyship, and we are at the end of season two here. We'll start up again season three, January 12th. You can learn more and stay tuned at changecatalyst.co slash allyship series. This is episode 31 on the importance of empathy, courage, and proximity in leadership with Kate Johnson, president of Microsoft US. Welcome, Kate. Excited to have you join us. Thank you. It's so great to be here, Melinda. So Kate, I always like to start with people telling a bit about their story and how they got where they are today. Can you share a little bit about how you ended up here as president of Microsoft US and and doing the work you do? Sure. Yeah. You know, I started off my career in tech. I was an electrical engineer by education. And it was one of those things where I thought that's what I wanted to do, you know, all my life as I was growing up as a kid. And it was about 11 seconds into my engineering career that I realized that I was a terrible engineer. And I, you know, I love solving problems, but I just wasn't very good in the lab and really wanted to be in a place where I had more uh, interaction socially. So I sort of pivoted over to sales and I was there for about 11 seconds when I realized that uh, I probably needed a bit more formal training. And so I went back to business school. And then it was from there that I realized that I don't don't think I was ever going to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I I went into consulting where you get a chance to kind of like sample stuff. And I spent six years in management consulting, learning about change, driving transformation programs. And that's when I fell in love with it. And all of the roles that I've had since then have really been around change leadership. How do you get a company or a team or a function or a business process from here to there? And, you know, what are all of the considerations that you need to bring to that story in order to make it happen well? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had an opportunity to, to talk to Satya about coming to Microsoft and learned what the role would be, which is essentially helping drive commercial transformation for the company, you know, on top of the U.S. subsidiary. And it was something that I couldn't turn down because I wanted to be a part of the transformation story that, that he was writing for, you know, this iconic technology company. Um, and how have allies played a role in your life? You know, as you've grown in your career, how have allies can made a difference for you? You know, it's really interesting that you ask the question like that, because when I think about it, Mm -hmm. I probably didn't recognize them as allies at the time. I think that word has evolved and taken on a really important meaning that I didn't necessarily grok a decade ago when allies were probably the most important in my career, maybe two decades ago. I've been around a little while. So, you know, I probably the earliest form of allyship was I had three amazing female bosses um, along the way. One was at a bank, one was at a tech company, and another was at an industrial company. All three of them recognized kind of, you know, gaps in my learning and development and connection and networking capabilities, confidence, you know, you name it. They kind of honed in on that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm combining labels here, manager and boss, mentor, sponsor, ally, 
you can't have one in isolation without this concept of allyship sort of underpinning everything. Hmm. And they were just magnificent because they really wanted to see me succeed as a female, as an executive in a world where there weren't a whole lot of females at the time. And they did the work to be intentional and to make those connections for me. And I have an enormous amount of gratitude for each of them and stay in touch with them as well. That's fantastic. And I think we need more stories and and more actions around women helping women for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So along those lines, actually, can you talk about your journey as an ally yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, I will say that often, I suspect often when people see two white women talking about (laughs) allyship, they're expecting us to talk about white women being allies for white women. And I think for both of us, it's a lot deeper than that. And I would love for you to kind of talk about your journey as an ally. Yeah, my journey is recent. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I I don't know that I've always been as aware of what my real role as a leader is. And I'm now at the point where, you know, any leader has to be, in my opinion, an ally in chief. And for Microsoft US, I am the ally in chief. I came upon that conclusion over the past couple of years and in embarking in this massive transformation that Microsoft is going through, you know, in a place where I had to bring in new leadership to the subsidiary. And in doing so, noticed that we really didn't have the connection across the leadership team that I wanted or that I knew we needed to maximize our impact as a team. And one of my favorite ways of bringing teams together is to focus on learning. And so, you know, I picked a topic. I wanted to go to Montgomery, Alabama to learn about the history of African-Americans in the United States. And we were fortunate enough to have one of the executives on the team have a connection with Brian Stevenson the famed attorney, you know, Harvard attorney that wrote Just Mercy and which became a blockbuster movie. And obviously he's been to the Supreme Court protecting the underserved, has argued there five times, successful four out of the five times. So it was supposed to be an amazing day of learning. And it turned out to be far more than that. It was profound learning. And all of us, you know, as we flew there, we kind of were in our normal mindsets of individuals. And when we flew home, We were a team that had learned something very uh, profound together. And it was really, for many of us, the most impactful immersion in the realities of racism in our country that any of us had ever experienced. Yeah. How many, sorry, how many of you were there? Well, and we spent, we spent two days there. So the first day kind of um, learning from Brian, we'd all read his book. And then the whole next day we went to all the museums and the, you know, the markers that he has implanted across the city. And, you know, it, it, it was it was big for anybody who hasn't been to Montgomery, Alabama to go to the Legacy Museum and, and all the other incredible displays of the history of African-Americans and Blacks in the United States. I strongly recommend you go. Alas, as we flew home together and we were kind of, you know, going through what we had experienced, there was just this remarkable connection and it was, it was deep. And I decided to ask Brian to speak at our, our sales kickoff. You know, confluence of events led to the fact that we needed him and he was able to do it. We got him on stage and we had all of Microsoft US and our partners in the MGM Graham studio in, in Las Vegas. And, you know, he entered into the arena and he got a protracted standing ovation. And it was an incredible moment for me because I was like, wow. This isn't just about my leadership team learning about the issue of race in the United States. This is about the entire organization recognizing that we need to learn 
more about the state of racism and social injustice uh, in our country. And so that was kind of a moment. And, and the cool thing after that, you know, half hour fireside chat where he got multiple standing ovations, talking about incredibly raw material, raw content, was that it opened up the channels of communication in the subsidiary. People were talking for the very first time about the realities, whether it was, you know, African-Americans talking about their life inside and outside of work and conscious and unconscious bias, or whether it was, you know, uh, a white person talking about learning about this for either the first time building awareness or deepening their understanding and the strong need for allyship and for us to address this inside and outside of work. Those channels had never been open before. We'd never talked openly about this at work. So I decided to kind of take it to the next level. And we took the entire subsidiary to go see Just Mercy on the same day, January 6, 2020. We rented out 42 theaters across the United States and in partnership with Warner Brothers, who were awesome at helping sort of my little dream become a reality. And we experienced the movie together as a subsidiary. And it's, it's pretty amazing taking several thousand people to see the same thing on the same day. It's the first time I had ever done that for sure. And it took us to the next level. You know, we hung around in the theaters. We went next door to cafes. We went to libraries. We went to conference rooms after that and talked and talked and talked <laughs> about everything from our cluelessness to, you know, the epiphanies to what are we going to do about it to the plans, et cetera. And it, it was fantastic. Now, shortly after that, the world went into a shelter in place mode and the pandemic had hit and we were all working from home. And then the world shone a light, the racism stage at the global level and the killings of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and so many more tragedies rooted in racial, you know, in racism. And, you know, all of us were kind of like, we've just learned so much about it. And here it is right in front of us all. What can we do together? And I made a bunch of phone calls to people around the subsidiary to say, you know, how are you? How do you feel? You know, tell me about what you're going through and then tell me what I can do. What does support look like from the company, from me as, as your leader, et cetera. And unanimously, they kind of pointed to this one thing, which is like, we need to learn to have conversations, tough conversations, and we need to figure out what to do about them because we don't know how to do it. We don't have the skills. And so I decided to kind of take it to the next level which was, okay, how do we give everybody the skills of what Brene Brown would call courageous leadership? I called Brene and said, help, help. You know, I've got 10,000 people who want to learn how to have difficult conversations. And it's all stemming from the experience this year that the world witnessed and that we believe in our hearts. Uh, if we work on this, we can actually make a difference inside of Microsoft. So that's kind of a, a long story about my journey of, of the awakening of being the ally in chief of Microsoft US. But along the way, I learned a couple of really important things. Number one, when we focus on a topic like this, you have to surround yourself with advisors, if you will. And the advisors need to be people who can tell you the truth about whether or not you really are an ally. You could say you're one, but if you're not getting that validation from the people that you're sponsoring or being the ally to, then it's meaningless. And the second thing is there's an enormous feeling of you know, satisfaction when you take the measure of success off of yourself and you put it on other people and you say, my success is defined by whether or not I can make this person or group of people successful. And that orientation for me is what allyship is all about. 
And I kind of went through it over the past couple of years at Microsoft in this role. Thanks for sharing that story. And maybe we could go deeper into... So you have a program that you've rolled out, Empathy in Action. I guess first, can you talk about why center around empathy? Sure. start there and then we can talk about the program. Yeah, because I actually, in my heart, believe that empathy is a superpower. And it's, it's the common denominator for leaders and individual contributors in a successful organization and one that's high performing. And it's so relevant to Microsoft and our mission. Our mission is to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. Now, if you're going to actually empower a person or an organization to do more, to be more productive in whatever business they're in, you have got to understand their business. And if you're going to understand their business, you've got to have this ability to listen, to learn. You know, so often in our corporate roles, we're we're sort of uh, very action-oriented. We listen to respond. We listen to then say what our opinion is, you know, that our belief is that we know the answer and we want to get to action as quickly as possible. Empathy is about listening to learn. It's about deep understanding so that you can continue to think about what the ultimate goal should be so that you can position yourself to work with your partner, you know, with your customers, with your uh, coworkers to drive to understanding and figure out what the right answer actually is. So I really think that building empathic muscle at scale is one of the keys to unlocking performance and to unlocking our transformation of the company. So, you know, early on, it started as kind of a mantra like empathy in action. And, and Brian Stevenson actually taught us something important. His formula for putting empathy into action, which I would argue he's probably the best example of an empathic leader that we have today. He says, you've got to have proximity. So you got to get close to whatever it is you're trying to understand. You have to be able to have a narrative to tell the story, right? You have to have hope because you can't create a following on negativity or <laughs> I wish you couldn't, but you know, it's certainly not one that the right people will sign up for, not in the long term, right? And then, then you know, action. Like, what do you do once you have the, the understanding, the narrative, you know, and, and the positivity for, of that, what the future looks like? Not in the long term. And yeah. those four steps, proximity, narrative, hope, and action are the key components of empathy. And we started really talking about that and practicing those four components. And then, you know, I, I told you the story of getting to here where we hired Brene Brown to teach us more skills. That was kind of the next thing. It's like, it can be a mantra, but you're not going to get anywhere unless you have the skills to change behavior. So we've put together a very robust plan with the help of our global partners at, at Microsoft, allyship training, manager training, you know, development plans, all that stuff to make sure that we are teaching the people what it takes to build an inclusive environment and one that is customer obsessed, that has empathy for the problems that our customers are trying to solve. You know, you can change behavior, but if the systems and processes of your company don't support that, then the change won't be durable, right? So our performance management systems, our hiring practices, our development plans, all of these things have to be lined up to support the new skills that we're developing. So we call that operational empowerment or the operating system to <laughs> make change last. And then the last piece of the plan, which is probably one of the ones that I get really excited about is, you know, taking our platform at Microsoft and bringing it into the markets and the communities that we serve. We have incredible resources and a great set of values at the company. And we care deeply about justice reform we care about access to healthcare. We care about sustainability. 
we care about, you know, all of these things. And we're able to take those pieces, oftentimes when we're making very significant investments, and to shape them to deliver goodness to the markets that we serve. So like Accelerate is a program where we're driving economic recovery in a post-COVID world by bringing digital skills to the citizens of communities that are most underserved. And we're working with our partners, you know, in the Chamber of Commerce, some of them are customers and, you know, and many of them also very oriented towards trying to bridge the uh, digital divide. And making commitments with those companies to hire the people that we train. And of course, you know, working with partners, not-for-profit NGOs that actually represent the underserved and have access to those communities that we as a corporate, you know, entity wouldn't necessarily have. So the plan called Empathy in Action, the three layers, skills and then operational empowerment and then engaging the ecosystems and communities really is a way for us to build empathic muscle at scale at Microsoft so we can ultimately fulfill that vision that Sati has of transformation. I love it. You know, I'm writing a book and, I, and I've and i been talking about allyship for a long time. And I talk about allyship as empathy in action. And, and, you know, I think that empathy in action looks like allyship. It looks like systemic change as well. And 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 you're really looking at, at both yeah. aspects of that. It's fantastic. Ooh, I have a few questions <laughs> kind of going deeper into that. One is how do you measure a success of a program like that? Yeah, actually that's, that's really, it's a great question because there are so many different levels. The first is, you know, we have pulse surveys of our people. So there's like the inside and the outside measurement. Outside measurement in the ecosystem engagement. Look, I think there's one measurement. It's not about how many people you train. It's about how many people are able to get jobs with those new skills. So I maniacally focus on trying to measure that, which by the way, drives my team crazy because it's really actually very hard to track in a community. But we have assets like LinkedIn where we we can actually track things like that. So we are doing that. And, and I'm excited about our progress. We have a long way to go, but you know, the communities that we're working with are deeply engaged and interested. So that's one measure. When we talk about allyship, when we talk about empathy, when we talk about these new skills of you know, courage training, there are a couple of different ways that we measure success. The first is we know there's a gap between our aspired culture that we have as a company and the lived reality of the people on the ground, you know, whether it be a manager, an individual contributor. If they're not experiencing all of the attributes of our culture, you know, sort of founded in a growth mindset, customer obsessed, diverse and inclusive, you know, and one Microsoft where we're actually operating as one team, all in the spirit of making an impact. If that doesn't sound or feel like what they're experiencing every day, I got a gap. And that gap is typically measured through our daily pulse surveys where we randomly sample employees. We also have a big moment every year called Microsoft Poll, where we have one of the most engaged workforces I've ever experienced in my career where we get rich data back on whether or not people see and feel a difference. And we ask really important questions. Number one, do you think that your leaders are focused on the right things? Are they actually focused on building an inclusive workforce for you? Do they believe diversity is important? And, you know, we get a lot of intelligence because we don't just have, you know, yes or no, or a one through five. We have the ability to have comments as well. And so, to me, that's the ultimate measure of success. Are you, in fact, making progress period over period with that belief system? Now, you're going to have moments where you're not showing the progress, but you'll also, I think, be able to really get a, a pulse on what the next step is based on the sets of results. And I'll, I'll give you a great example. When we went through 
the period of time from the fall when Brian Stevenson spoke at our sales uh, kickoff through to when we, you know, January experienced Just Mercy together through to the sheltering in place where we all witnessed the racial violence events. Our NPS scores on this one question, does your leadership team think diversity inclu- you know, inclusion is important and are they committed to it? It went from, well, I don't think I'm allowed to release the numbers, but It improved by 17 points, okay? It was a massive change. Then we went into quiet mode where we were building the plan for the next step of the courageous leadership curriculum rollout. And we didn't say anything for 45 days to maybe two months. Guess what happened? It dropped right back down to where it was, which really taught me something about the importance of talking about what we're doing. I don't necessarily have to show that I have all these really complex problems solved, but I've got to communicate where we are, what we're thinking, even if we haven't made any progress period over period, we've got to be very intentional about sharing that information. So as we, you know, focus on the measurement of success being how are people feeling and are we bridging the gap in order to make sure that you're getting an accurate feed and that you're building, you know, sustainable change, you've got to have your communication plan vibrant and active always, always on. So can you talk about the link between empathy and courage and why you chose to approach the the courage piece of it kind of for, well, not first, but um, early on? So to me, you know, every, so everybody's got their understanding of the word courage. It's there, you know, you can go to the dictionary and it's, it's pretty spot on. I think courage in the context of leadership is really interesting because it's about saying, hey, I'm going to take the responsibility, even though I can't control the outcome, and I'm going to do it in a set of conditions that are incredibly risky. Now, look at the market that we're talking about right now. I mean, holy cow, you know, Melinda, like the, the world is just crazy right now, right? And so to be a leader, right now and say, I'll own the results of what we're doing, whether you're on the front line, whether you're in back office, whether you're somewhere in between, it doesn't really matter. The fact that courageous leadership is about saying, I'll own, I'll own the outcome, even though I can't control it. In order to do that well, then you have to have empathic muscle. You have to be able to drive deep understanding Hmm. of your constituents, whether it's your customers, your partners, or your coworkers, whether, you know, your team. So I really think it's incredibly hard to disconnect to. And by the way, I think the third sort of leg of that stool is, is vulnerability, yeah, right? I was just going to say that. Yeah. 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 Because there's just no way that you can be courageous without being vulnerable. I mean, simply by saying, I can't control the outcome, but I'll take responsibility. That's setting yourself up for being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, with that comes the, the interpretation of what vulnerability means to all the various players. So if you as a leader say, hey, here are my assets and my liabilities. I got to hire a team that can help me, you know, fill in all the gaps. You're being vulnerable in a great way. The people who kind of join the team and sign up for the same kinds of conversation, you know, then feel comfortable being vulnerable and sharing their, you know, assets and liabilities. And then all of a sudden you stand the chance of creating a team that has all of the right fixings for success. And there's some things that can seriously trip you up if you Mm -hmm. lack trust, if you lack psychological safety, sort of empathy, vulnerability, and courage triangle won't work. But if it does work, then you have, I think, the great makings for unlocking the performance of your people. It seems like there's also uh, a level of just having an overall in making it in making it easier for vulnerability and courage is is the growth mindset the openness to growth openness to change openness to learning and 
I think that is so important uh, as well. Yeah. So how does leadership play a role in all of this? How are you holding, maybe holding yourselves accountable for it? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So here, here's the difference between this company and, and most of the ones that I've worked for in the past. We have such a clear picture of who we want to be and it is a gift and it's deeply rooted in science. So, you know, it's not some woolly thing, which is ambiguous and nobody really understands it. It's all the attributes of our culture that we, you know, sort of picked that Satya and his SLT picked to describe who we wanted to be to best embody the workforce that could fulfill our mission. Those things were all rooted in neuroscience. That's, you know, sort of always oriented towards the positivity and encouraging people and shining a light on the stuff that's working and creating safe feedback for the places that's not working. So, you know, that is the first thing is that our leader at the top and his leadership team created a crystal clear picture for who we want to be. Now, it's up to to people like me. I lead a large business, but, you know, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not at the top and I'm not at the bottom. And it's me. I'm the one that we need to unlock to make sure that I embrace the vision of what we need to be, that I'm picking sort of the things to do that will make the most sense to drive our business towards that goal. We know we can't just paint the picture and say, everybody go there. You've got to have, you know, all of the pieces that I described earlier about you need to make sure everybody's got the right skills. You need to make sure that your processes support the behavior change. And then you need to make it all real in the markets that you're serving. That was what I thought my job should be to make this a reality. And and I got to tell you, it's taken me a little bit of time to crystallize that vision and mission. And by the way, a whole lot of help from the people who I work with. My entire extended leadership team has had a lot to do with shaping it because it's deeply relevant to our business, but 100% connected to the mothership. And that's rare. And so we're really sort of enjoying the clarity that came from the fruits of our collective labor, right? A lot of times a culture or a mission is just hanging out there and you point to it, but you don't really know what it means and you don't know how you're supposed to behave to support it. We've addressed all of that and, and it's it's like a, a gift that is really accelerating the change in how we show up in front of our customers in a, in a beautiful way. And I think it's changing the way that we show up in front of each other, which traces all the way back to that notion of allyship. So you mentioned uh, in your journey that you did some work around change management and in within your consulting work and my background as well. Can you go deeper into how that shapes how you look at change? What do you think about when you're, when you, I mean, you have a a large organization that you're working to shift. What are you thinking about? Yeah. So, you know, back in the day, and it was a really long time ago, we always talked about people, process, and technology, like the three things that you had to think about when you're changing something. And we had this sort of the as is assessment of all three of those things with the two B you know, visioning of what we wanted it to look like. And then we had the gap analysis and then you broke it into pieces and you said, okay, for each of the three buckets of people, process and technology, what do we need to do? I've gotten to the place now where I really think that the technology, great technology is table stakes. The conversation doesn't even get started unless you have a world-class portfolio of technology. And there are a couple of companies out there that do. We are fortunate enough to be one of them. The next thing is process. You know. Remember business process and workflows and stuff like that? Super important part of any transformation program. When you reinvent businesses in a digital world, it's not really about the process of like the who, the what, the where, the thing. It's really about the business outcome 
and then designing everything around that. And it becomes like customer experience that matters, right? Because digital can get to the answer and skip all the process steps. So, so that bucket's changed a little bit. But this third bucket is the one that nobody's cracked yet. I'm a little obsessed with it in case you can't tell, because I truly believe that if we can create the mechanism to help people reach their full potential, then I'm certain that Microsoft will, you know, be successful in its uh, mission to transform. But more importantly, we will be the best place to work on earth because in order to unlock that performance, people have to be able to show up as their authentic selves. They have to feel a sense of belonging and inclusion. They have to feel safe. There has to be trust. And all those things I just described are, are the components of great workplace. Now, we've all been on teams where we felt that, but have you ever felt that end-to-end in a company at scale? I would argue that very few people have. And that's what we're shooting for here because, you know, with the 10,000 people we have in, the, in Microsoft US, if we can give them that experience, man, there's no stopping us. Um, okay, I'm uh, jumping into some questions here. And forgive me if I say your name wrong. Tanushree um, asks, have you encountered resistance from people while driving the change and building the more inclusive culture? And if so, how have you handled it? Sure, of course, there's resistance, but it's usually in the form of nostalgia. So it's not, there's no malintent. Like I haven't experienced people who are like, let's not create an inclusive environment. That sounds terrible. Everybody's sort of, you know, emotionally bought in. But when you, when you think about, you know, I think Brene uses the term wholeheartedness. It's when you align your mind, your heart and your actions, right? Nostalgia gets in the way of that sometimes of all of us showing up in a wholehearted way to drive the transformation outcomes, you know, including and beginning with creating a sense of belonging for every person. It's usually, hey, that's not the way that we did it in the past. And, you know, when you join a great company like Microsoft, part of the beauty of it is that you're standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before you, as a wise man said, and you have to pay tribute to that legacy because, you know, for the success that that you're experiencing to date. The question is, how do you pay tribute to it and also change it at the same time? That's the trickiness. And so I would say that most of the resistance is born out of a place where people either A, don't have the skills to do what you're talking about, and that's what we're trying to address, or B, they feel as though you haven't paid enough tribute to the way that, that things were done in the past. And they want to feel more of that moving forward. And everybody fears obsolescence or irrelevance. And so that sometimes makes, you know, keeping things going the way, you know, they want them to go, it makes it sticky. And you've got to, that's what you've got to address. Joseph asks, and definitely that we have learned in our work that managers are, can be a key sticking point in an organization when you're working on organizational change. So what are the best ways for an organization to begin to empower managers to promote DEI? So to me, it's about noise and priority. So the reason why things get frozen in the middle, and remember, I put myself in the bucket of, of you know, in between Satya and the, the individual contributors on the ground, right? And so the first thing is you, you have to have clarity. Everybody has to really deeply understand where you're going. In any sort of learning moment, we all know you have to hear something seven times to really master it. It's the same thing with any sort of change program. It's really hard when you've been doing things one way for a long time to suddenly change your behavior. You need, you need skills, you need the systems, you know, and processes, et cetera. And you need clear metrics and clear outcomes. 
And a lot of times I find that you don't communicate enough. And that's kind of what gets in the way of everybody sort of feeling empowered that I own this outcome too. So it's about having, you know, a clear mission and vision, having a clear set of actions and activities and the associated outcomes and measurements. And then it's about giving everybody a chance to really understand that more than once, it's got to be a lot of times. And if you're getting to the place where you've gotten rid of all the noise, you have total clarity about what you want to try and do, and you're still not getting the desired outcome, then you actually have to start looking at individuals and say like, do you believe or do you not believe? Tell me the truth. If you can't get to the truth, you know, then let's look at your actions and do they support what you're saying? And where you have dissonance there, you kind of hone in on that and in a very polite and productive and professional way, point that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yes. Productive. Yeah, exactly. Great. Amanda asked an interesting question. Looking back at other companies or industries where you've worked and you didn't see a culture of empathy and inclusion, do you think you could go back now and make some of the same changes you're working on at Microsoft? Or do you think you need a visionary like Satya and also also his management team? Yeah. So I need need Satya. I need his, his leadership team. I needed this moment in time. I mean, it's kind of existential. And, and it, you know, is the impetus for a lot of change. I also needed 53 years um, under my belt to have this level of, you know, awareness. I mean, honestly, it's like you can only learn certain things. So, and there was so much time in my career where I was trying to do my job that I didn't pick my head up and realize that leading in that way was my job. And it's very different. And I now have kind of enough confidence to, to go after a different kind of leadership, which, by the way, isn't always easy. But I also have enough clarity to know that if I focus on the right things, it will directly improve performance. And I wasn't, 20 years ago, I wasn't there. 10 years ago, I wasn't there. And so I really feel like it's a confluence of these amazing things that got lined up. Satya's visionary, you know, his leadership team is amazing. This job is an incredible opportunity that I'm grateful for every day. And then where we are as a company in the market right now is like, you know, putting pressure on us in all the right ways where we have to move quickly. And so we can and will move quickly. So Susan, who is a a good friend of mine and also my executive coach, um, uh, asks, what recommendation do you have to an individual leader wanting to take on this personally as a leader, embodying empathy in action? Well, it probably starts with the mandate. Like, what are you trying to accomplish? Because just trying to, to become a great leader or to change something without the focus on the outcome and the ability to see progress can be really hard. And so the mandate for us is no matter who you are in the organization, if you see a gap between our spouse culture and the lived reality, that's the gap that you're on the hook to try and help close, no matter what your responsibility is, no matter what your role is. So I'd say if you're an individual and you want to do this, the first thing is the why. What are you trying to accomplish? And then the second thing is, you know, what skills do you need? I mean, Honestly, all of the language around allyship, all of the language around courage, vulnerability, empathy, you have to have a common language with the people around you if you're going to affect change at scale. So you can embody this belief system and the values and knowing the right things to do, and you can make a big impact in your personal life, because I, I have as well, with trying to live this life inside and outside of my job. So all of that is on the table for any individual that wants to. 
The question is then how do you make that come alive in no matter what role you have, whether it's an individual contributor, whether it's leading a small team, whether it's leading a big team, because there are ways to make that a reality in all three of those scenarios. Toki asks, what is the the best advice a mentor has given you? (laughs) You mean like ever? Ever. Ever. Ever in your, yeah. (laughs) Without a doubt, uh, my favorite advice, and I've gotten a lot of advice because advice usually comes when you're doing something terribly wrong. But uh, great advice was, will you please, Kate, Hmm. will you please Hmm. (laughs) walk around the block, because I used to live in New York, at least one time before you send an email when you're reacting to something. And I turned that into, I actually needed seven laps around the block in order to achieve, you know, the outcome that she suggested, which was calm down and cool it and think before you respond. And that was, that was a long time ago, but you know, I, (laughs) when I talked to her, she was one of the three women that I talked about. I still think about that moment where we were in a conference room. She was like, you know, you'd be so much better at your job if you would just stop and walk around the block before you respond. I'm like, yeah. Well, I'll give that a try and it worked. <laughs> I sometimes like wait a whole 24 hours it, just in case to, to give, it, give me a little extra time. And it, it makes a world of difference. It really does. Yeah. Well, the, other, the other thing that's very helpful is just picture your mom or someone you love reading the email out loud to your children. <laughs> That also is extremely effective. <laughs> to your children. Did you say, ah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Have your mom read the email to your children while you sit at the table and listen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, Patricia asks a hard question around, as a woman working in tech and who is a diversity and inclusion advocate, I'd very much appreciate how to engage the discussion with white men feeling threatened or attacked when engaging on DNI conversations. Do you have any thoughts for the folks that are vulnerable and maybe that nostalgic place? Um, what yeah. do you do yeah. when they're there? So I don't, I don't have all the answers, by the way. I'm thinking this through and I'm learning with all of you. We are learning together about all this. Now I'm married to a white man and I have a son. And I see it from a lot of different angles and views. And I would say that the thing that we all have to realize is it doesn't matter what role you are in when your world is changing, it is hard. And if you, especially if you don't have the capabilities. So regardless of your perspective, regardless of your understanding of your privilege, when things are changing and you don't necessarily understand as the empathy that we are trying to, to give to those who have been underserved for so long. And I'm not saying that we don't have a massive problem with privilege and, and, you know, and, and a lot of work to do. I'm just saying that change is hard no matter what role you play in the storyboard. And understanding that and having Great listening skills is very, very key to sort of disarming the conversation to get to a place of, of better productivity. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's what I've learned so far, but I don't know. And if anybody has the answers, please call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I would, I, I feel the same. It's, um, it is really hard and really important to also show empathy for people that are in that place and, and to, to listen and to have honest conversations, transparent conversations, genuine conversations to get to a place of understanding. Tell me more is usually the phrase that I learned in this dare to lead training that we went through that passes the baton 
to the person who's who's sharing the concern where they yeah. automatically start to write themselves into the story. Mm-hmm. Instead of this is happening to me, you say, tell me more. And they start to lean in and tell you everything from their perspective of how they feel from the first person. And it really changes the game in terms of driving empathy, by the way. That is one trick that I'm using a little bit more that's helping me get through these conversations, which are very Mm -hmm. difficult and complex. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. And Patricia answers a very insightful answer. Many thanks. Um, uh, Joseph asks, you will be making any resources available for the work that you're doing um, publicly. Um, might Microsoft make resources available for smaller organizations to potentially adapt and use training, agenda, mission statements, evaluation tools? There's yeah. a couple of questions around, you know, how you're evaluating and if that there's a way to get access to any of that. So I think the best place to start is our diversity and inclusion report that we publish as a company, which which summarizes much of uh, you know the impetus for all of the change that I'm trying to make in my subsidiary, my guiding light, my you know, my central resource is is our uh, DNI team, our chief diversity officer, and all of the material that she publishes. I don't think we've gotten to a place where we're systematically training the world. You know, on all the things we're being trained on. I think we're we're kind of trying to get it right inside. Now, that being said, we do meet with customers every day on how we're thinking about our transformation. All of the stories that I just told, I, I tell customers every day. We do coaching sessions where, you know, we look at their plans. We think about how that relates to the work that we're doing together. Is it showing up on the projects? How could we practice it together more, et cetera? So anecdotally or, you know, sort of not systematically at scale, we are, you know, trying to provide insight into what we're doing. And I just want to be really clear. It's not like we've figured this out. It's not like I have 10,000 perfectly, you know, happy people who feel like they have a deep sense of belonging every single day. I've got a lot of work to do. I just have a plan. And that's, I think, the most important place to start. And figuring out resources for smaller companies to make the same kind of progress, I think, is a great question when it comes to research together. Um, So I I just have a couple more questions. When you're looking to the future, what what is next? Um, Have you thought past this into like, what, what is beyond this? Oh, Karen, I need to really just try and get this done. Maybe we'll take a hundred years. I, I actually don't think there is a, oh, we're done, we're there, it's over. I think it will mm-hmm. constantly be, what is next level? As a matter of fact, I had a next level meeting with somebody yeah. just yesterday to say, okay, what if I'm rolling out the Dare to Lead training to all 10,000 people in Microsoft US? So we have to learn to have the ability to rumble the, the ability to lean into our values and you know and live them, the ability to brave trust and the ability to rise strong after setbacks. Those are the core components of building a courageous set of leaders in Microsoft US. That will take me for the rest of the year. What do I do next? I'm looking for methods and systems and processes to take our ability to connect as human beings to the next level. And anything I do, has to work. I kind of have this formula where it's like my extended leadership team. So picture like a hundred executives across the 10,000 or so, and then the thousand managers. So it's like a hundred, a thousand, and then the 10,000 people, everything I do, I have to be able to train the first thing, see if it works, tweak it, then train the managers, see if it works, tweak it, and then train everybody else. And so these have to be sort of special things, whether it's thought leadership, whether it's pilot programs, whether it's, you know, more skills training, it doesn't matter what it is. 
that's how I think through stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the next level is and which is already a year out. Mm-hmm. I don't have the answers so you can have them, please. Them. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the magic, the, the magic, uh, uh, crystal ball. No. Um, but I love that you're thinking about clearly you've kind of laid out that you, you started with one and you built upon that and you built upon that. You saw what was needed and you, and you moved to the next stage. I, I, I think that is, in some ways, a refreshing way of looking at it. it. It really is a continuous process of learning and growth as you go and building as you grow. So where can people learn more about you, about your work? So I try and, and write on LinkedIn. I don't get to do it nearly enough, but I'm telling the story on, on LinkedIn. I also am noodling some, I call daring diaries. So it's as we go through the Brene Brown work, what am I experiencing at work? And, and you know, sort of what have I learned and what are my epic fails? Because uh, that's probably where we learn the most. And uh, so that would probably be the, the source. The other thing is if, you know, you're a part of a company where we have a relationship with the other partner or customer, we can always, you know, get the teams together and, and try and make some magic happen. The other, the last thing is Accelerate, which is that program that I talked about where we're really trying to bring some of this to the communities that we serve, I think is a great place for the entire ecosystem, whether it's down to the individual or large organizations, there's a role there and we're figuring that out as well. So hopefully we can learn more about each other through that process. As we go into 2021, what are one or two words that you're going into the next year thinking about? Gratitude. I haven't ever had a period in my life where I use the word more. And I think it finally really means something. It's mm-hmm. like I have an enormous, I'm going to get like emotional in a second. I have an enormous amount of gratitude for everything that I have right now, you know, family, job, life, health, you know, the, the whole, the whole deal. And I want to live my life sort of feeling that every day. And uh, this year has been terrible for the world, just terrible. And that has helped me kind of get to a, a place of really understanding the practice of gratitude and the enormous impact it can have on me individually, as well as those around me. And I think that as I think towards 21, I, I just want to keep thinking about how do we connect everything we do to corporate social responsibility and making an impact in the communities that we serve. We've got a tremendous platform and bringing the things that I'm talking about to the markets that we serve, I think should be part of our responsibility. It is part of our responsibility and I'm excited to start to show some progress in 21. So wish me luck. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kate, for sharing, sharing what you're working on, sharing your wisdom and um, really appreciate you and the conversation. Thank you, Melinda. Thanks for the chance to share some of the ideas and I love your show and hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. So everyone, I'll leave you with this question. How can you put empathy into action today? This week, this month, this year, how can you put empathy into action? Uh, So this is our final episode. If you missed any episode, um, you can go to our website and check them out. And uh, thank you all. Appreciate you all. Appreciate the questions and your presence and look forward to seeing you in 2021. Allyship is a journey. It requires self-exploration, learning, unlearning, healing, and taking consistent action. What step will you take today? Thank you everyone for tuning into our podcast. Join us each week for Leading with Empathy and Allyship. And I invite you to attend the live version too. Come be a part of the community and ask your questions about being an ally. Go to changecatalyst.co 
slash allyship series to RSVP. And also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this with somebody who needs it. This show was created by Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through consulting, training, and events. A big thank you to my team behind the scenes who are helping me produce this show. Renzo Santos, the head of finance and logistics. Antonia Ford, diversity and inclusion specialist. Sally Moiwewa, project manager. Juliet Roy, producer. All right, thanks. See you next time.